Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in, in, in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. You may be seated. So this morning I'd like to um, bring up uh, Pastor Travis Payton. Good to have you here again. For those of you who remember, Travis has been with us several times. Uh, one time it was freezing cold, and now we've just brought the heat So just <laughs> and, and the birds. So we're glad to have you open up the words, so open up the word for us this morning. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. It's great to be here, actually. Very excited. Well, 2 Corinthians is a fascinating book, and uh, it is one of the books that Paul wrote that really breaks the mold for his approach, probably like Galatians, but a whole different Manner, I guess I should say. Galatians breaks the mold of how Paul usually writes a book, writes a letter to a church, and so does 2 Corinthians. It's dripping with a lot of emotion. There's a lot of pastoral concern. The church is in trouble, um, both in the previous letter and some other letters, a couple other letters that we don't have copies of. But the church was in trouble. And uh, there were a lot of threats, and so Paul's style of writing is really, uh, at times, explosive. Again, it's at times uh, emotional, but his heart bleeds through in this book, probably like nowhere else, particularly in a pastoral approach. Probably the only other place would be 1 Thessalonians, where he drips that much pastoral pathos or emotion into um, his letter. And I have to confess, last night, um, late last night, I was putting the finishing touches on this message, and I said, you know what, I'm going to go to sleep, wake up in the morning, and I, get, I couldn't sleep. Actually, one of my sons woke me up with fits. I have no idea what he was doing, but God was waking me up, and I got back at my desk, and I looked at what I had, and I looked at my outline, and I said, this is not going to work. It's just not going to work, and I hate it when that happens. <laughs> That's the wrong time to be thinking that. And I spent weeks studying this passage, but uh, I said, this is not right. 
I said, what am I going to do? I know this is not right. I mean, it was all accurate. It was all what the text said, but it's not right. And so I prayed about it. I said, Lord, you've got to help me uh, because I can't do this. And so I scrapped it, and I sent Ed a brand new outline this morning. <laughs> and so if you have that, praise God. I hope it's going to be a blessing to you. Um, but basically, what I want to take from this text, it's all within it, is five lessons. The title is The Father's Plan for Allowing Suffering in His Children. The Father's Plan, because He's got a plan for allowing suffering in His children. And so what I want us to do this morning is look at five lessons that we can learn, basically, as Paul goes through this section. The word that is repeated throughout this is affliction. And it literally means a pressing or pressure. It can refer to suffering or tribulation. And the idea is that outward circumstances have caused pressure on an individual. It's the squeeze that comes from things that are outside our control. You know what I'm talking about? And we all experience this at different times and in different degrees. But then there's another word that Paul uses in here, and I think that these two are interchangeably used, and that is suffering. So afflictions and sufferings. And a question that inevitably arises from afflictions that press in on us, particularly those which are persistent, and or intense in nature is why is this happening? Eventually it comes up. No matter how mature we are in the faith, no matter how good our theology is, which all that helps, it really does. It provides a framework for us and we want to add to that framework this morning. But eventually the question comes up, why does God allow suffering in His children? Particularly when it gets really intense. And I think we can learn some lessons from Paul's initial remarks in this second letter that we have, at least, to the Corinthians in chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. And in this text, there are basically two sections, and they're marked off in your Bible by the paragraph indentations. That you see there. And the first section is a, a broad kind of overview of what God's doing in suffering. And the, the second section is really explicit to the occasion that Paul's talking. What he's referring to in his own life, in his ministry, that broke him down so far. So he's got both of these in mind. And they kind of circle around each other. Which is one of the reasons I couldn't go with my outline. Because it's hard to outline this text. But... I think we can learn these lessons, though. So let's see what the Spirit wants us to glean from this text. The first one, lesson number one, God's design of suffering is to produce worship from His people. Now that's kind of counterintuitive. <laughs> but God's design, first of all, is to produce worship from His people. Notice how Paul bookends this passage. First of all, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Praise be Him. Wow. And then notice what he says at the end of verse 11. So that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. That's why I say the first lesson is worship. It's what God wants to bring about in us in suffering. Now, the reason I say that's counterintuitive because it is characteristic of unbelievers to curse God in intense afflictions. Right? Now, this is an example, different but similar. In Revelation 6, you remember when, if you're familiar with that chapter, when the great wrath of the Lamb comes and there's this massive earthquake that takes place and it shakes the entire world. What do they say? What do the unbelievers say at this time? Hide us from His wrath! And they're crying out for the rocks to crush them so that they can run from Him. And throughout the book of Revelation, you read, just several times when John points out, and all this they didn't repent, but their animosity grew stronger towards God because suffering was coming on them. And we know this to be true. Unbelievers characteristically curse God in afflictions because this stems from a heart that does not see God accurately. That's why it comes out that way. Satan has sabotaged the human race so that we do not intuitively view God as good and as the ultimate loving Father. That's contrary to our thinking as an unbeliever. And even as believers, we can struggle with this because I've struggled with this at times. Remember Job? His wife, in chapter 2, why don't you just curse God and die? Get it over with. Because she cracked under intense suffering. And I'm not making light of the situation. It was steep. By the way, I was telling my wife this morning, the only other time I've had to scrap a, a message like that was when I was going to give an overview of the book of Job. <laughs> About uh, two summers ago at our home church in Vallejo. And I'd studied it, got all my outline ready and everything. And I'd go on to bed, the same type thing. I was going to get up and finishing touches the last couple hours in the morning. And I'm lying there on the couch going, and my mind just started racing. And I thought, wait a second, this is not right. Oh, man. And I got up and I looked at what I had. And I said, this is wrong. And I got out a pencil and paper and scribbled down a whole bunch of stuff. And I went, that's right. And I went and I taught it. And the Lord really blessed it. But anyway, I was telling my wife, I was like, fascinating. Two times, same topic. Anyway, the book of Job. So that's, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. We can, we can slip into that. We can struggle to that point. 
And the point during that book of Job, when I overviewed that, is that some of you have probably been there. Some, as a matter of fact, some of I know you've been there. Some of you have not. But you'll be amazed at the depths of your heart and the residual effects of unbelief that will show up when suffering hits for a long time. And you might be tempted to say things that you couldn't even believe were in your heart toward God. But Job, you know what, turn back to Job 1, and I know I can do this because I saw on my sheet that, wow, they gave me 60 minutes for this. <laughs> so I thought, well, I guess I can take tangents when they come. But in Job chapter 1, go back to verse 20, because this is, and this is, when I talk about building a framework for sufferings, the Father's plan for allowing sufferings in His children, and this is in light of, of our first lesson, God's design of suffering is to produce worship from His people. Notice Job and, and Job 1, 20-22. See, his framework fitted and it helped him for a long time before it got so bad that he really began to struggle with this. But listen, when, then verse 20, Then Job arose after all the sufferings. And go back and read it if you're not familiar with this chapter. But all that came into his life, Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell out on the ground and worshipped. It's the first thing out of his mouth. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Praise be the name of the Lord. See, Paul and Job were very, very mature saints. But their stories are very similar too, as we're going to read on here. Another example... Go back to our book, 2 Corinthians. Now this is, I think, as the book of 2 Corinthians unfolds, it's fascinating to see Paul's language in chapter 1 and what he has to say later about his sufferings. But look at verse 12. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord. If you know Paul... That's a big deal for him. He's so driven by preaching Christ that that's big news for him to have a wide open door. But he says, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. My brother, he's supposed to meet me here. Where is he? Imagine yourself on a foreign mission field. In some country, you don't speak the language. And all the chaos that could ensue when things start to unravel, and you're supposed to meet somebody at a rendezvous point. There no cell phones here, right? <laughs> and he's not there to show up. This is my brother. And his heart sinks. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But notice the transition. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. See that? Worship. Praise. Trials, afflictions come. Or how about Colossians 1.24? I rejoice in my sufferings. He's in prison. Or how about James 1.2? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of Various kinds. These are not happy-go-lucky songs. 
that just kind of flip out of our mouths in casual conversation. This is war stuff that Paul's writing this from and James writes this from. He's not in Christianese. This is real wartime language of worship, interaction. You know what I've noticed in my own life? And this is the connecting point between lesson number one, God's design of suffering is to produce worship from His people. What I've noticed in my own life, when I'm not worshiping in suffering, it is a result of one thing, unbelief. It's unbelief. And I've been there. And this can be cyclical. That is, you know, for a moment, you enter into this stuff, and, and your theology's there. It's where Job was at the start. Your theology's there. It's holding you. But then it goes on, and it goes on, and it goes on. You thought it, delivery was like right around the corner, but no, that's not the case. And it goes on. And then unbelief starts to set in. And at that point, Everything goes on its head and worship goes out the window because you're doubting him. And when you doubt him, you can't worship him. However, if a major purpose of affliction is to produce worship, it is fair to ask, how do I get there? How do I get there? Okay, I see that. That's what Paul did. He's a big saint, right? How do I get there? And Paul helps us by aligning our thinking on this subject as we go through the text. So let's look at the second lesson. And this is important. You say, how do I get to worship? We can't skip these steps. Lesson number two, suffering produces intimacy with God. Suffering produces intimacy with God. Notice who Paul addresses in verses 3 and 4. Who is it? Somebody tell me. Don't be bashful. Say loud. I can hear you. Yeah, but who's he crying out to? The Father. The Father. Let that phrase do what it's supposed to do. There's a reason that that is so repeated in the New Testament. You think about it. How did you relate to God as an unbeliever? He's distant, right? Way off over there. No, this is dear, endearing terminology. The Father. I see three things in verses 3 and 4 that are true about our Heavenly Father in the midst of suffering. And again, this is tied to belief. And this needs to wipe out the lies that Satan tells us when we're in the heat of it. Okay, this is, you say, how do I get there? This is part of it. This has to be ingrained deep in our thinking so that in the heat of it, when we're losing sight and the devil's lies are coming in, the lies we used to just live for with regard to God, they start to creep back in. And all the the pleasure and intimacy we had during the happy times start to fade. And we got to get a new grip in our intimacy with Him. First of all, 
He is tenderly compassionate in relation to His children. He is the Father of mercies. Wow. He's the Father of mercies. He's tenderly compassionate toward us. He's, he's that way to you. Second of all, He is sovereignly powerful and able to comfort His children. He's the God of all comfort. You know, there are times when my children, I just can't fix it. I can't help. He doesn't have that spot to get in. He's never in that place where He can't meet you and help you and comfort you. He's sovereign. He's got all power. He's the God of all comfort. And third, He comforts us in every single affliction. That is, He comforts us in all our afflictions. Every single one. That's a Father who's cared with all the intricate little details of your life. And all of us together as a body of Christ, He's that way with. That's our Father. That's the kind of thinking we have to have so when the darts come in, you remember how Satan works? It's these flaming darts. And they hit you. And they hit you. And they cripple you. And that's when doubts sink in. And you don't believe. And it's these truths that i got to build us back up. We've got to remind ourselves. And we've got to take time to peel ourselves back and say, Spirit, remind me of the truth. Because I'm just engrossed in lies right now. I've been listening to all these things in my head over and over. And it's beating me down. Look where I am now. Help me. And he will. You know, when my children are pained, they enter into an experience with me that's different than normal because it taps into my fatherly compassion for them. And I bend over for them. When my children are in sin and it's beating them up and I've disciplined them and I'm talking with them about it, I say, listen, you need to understand something. It breaks my heart when I see this. Or when somebody's bullying my children around, man, it tugs at me because they're hurting. If it's that way with an imperfect father, don't you imagine it's off the charts with a perfect heavenly father and how he looks at you in your suffering? So let's, let's get the truth of the matter in this. He's not distant from our suffering. He cares about it. Remember what Peter says? Cast your cares on him because he cares for you. He cares for you. So we need to have a right view of our father. He knows and he cares. Which leads us to the next lesson. Suffering produces intimacy with God. But third lesson, our suffering is not in isolation, but our suffering is intentionally for others as well. Oh, it is very intentional. And Paul brings this out. As a matter of fact, multiple places, and I want us to look at them in our passage here. Does he bring this out? Look at verse 4. Who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in an any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. 
There's a purpose in it. This is not aimlessness. And I know we think that at times. God, it just seems like this is aimless. What's the point in it? Well, here's one point. Look at verse 6 and 7, how we join together. If we are afflicted, it's for your comfort. Whose? Your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it's for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. And then finally, look at verse 11. We already read this. You also must help us. you got to help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. So the third lesson is our suffering is not in isolation, but God has intentionally planned it, designed it for others as well. Because as we receive comfort from our, our Father, we are then prepared to be able to comfort others as well. Man, I've seen this so many times. That countless, well, seemingly meaningless trial that just kept going on and on and on and on. I mean, I'm looking around going, this is ridiculous. Any other person could solve this, but I can't. But no, God has a purpose, and you're going to directly be able to speak into somebody else's life. Because God delivered you, and you're going to be able to share that comfort. No, I, I'm not just going to tell you this. I've been there, and he can get you out of it. He's enough. He can. So that's part of it. So, the question, when we look at this, that we bring to others, as we've wrestled with it, because honestly, we look at it when the suffering gets bad, and we think, God, I don't know. This one looks like it's too much. But honestly, we've got to answer some questions. What can we not endure if His power is there for us? What can He not sustain us through when His grace is there? What is not ours if He is strengthening us? And once we've tasted that, again, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, again, oh yeah. Last time I said I wasn't going to doubt you, the next time I get into it. But when we've tasted it, again, we have a richer inventory to speak into someone else's Sorrow. So I guess you could take that back and just, this is the love and the horizontal aspect to say, God, I want to love others. So help me not to miss this in the process. Help me not to sit here just complaining and wallowing in my pity. No matter how much it hurts, but help me to look forward to the day when you're going to let me minister to somebody else. And to grab them by the hand and say, come on, I'll walk through this with you. So this is part of the plan that God has for our suffering. And so with Paul, because we've been there, we can say this in verse 7. Our 
hope for you, 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 younger, weaker Christian who just lost a child. My hope for you is unshaken. Because we know that as you go through this suffering, you will also share with us and our comfort. I know what this is going to produce in you. We can have that confidence. It's part of God's plan. He will not leave His children. He will not. There's a fourth lesson. Our sufferings are firmly, and this one is massive, and certainly rooted in our union with Christ. Look at verse 5. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Paul drips that verse through the rest of this epistle, all the way through it, in big chunks of Scripture. He drips this out. As we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, and there are numerous texts, and we're going to look at some of them, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. This verse places the emphasis of this whole passage on Christ as the central reason and link to our comfort from the Father. Look over in chapter 8, verse 6. It's fitting that Paul said this because everything in the life of the believer flows from the Father through Christ. Look at chapter 8, verse 6. That's not where I wanted to go. <laughs> Let me try another one. I guess I don't know what to say on that one. But it's basically just what I said. <laughs> that everything flows from God. Go through every chapter and find verse 6 that addresses that. <laughs> well, how do you like that? It happens. Maybe it's seven. Oh, that's not the, that's a great one too. Why does that not work? Why can't I make it work? <laughs> Where is that? Uh Anyway, I got more. <laughs> I said, listen to this. Paul says in Colossians 1.24, we said the first part of a while ago, but now I rejoice in my sufferings, filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. For Paul, all of his sufferings were connected with whom? Christ, all of those sufferings, and he mentions them in 2 Corinthians 11, if you want to get a look at them. All of those sufferings, he says, this is because I'm united to Christ. 
and I'm filling up what is lacking in his sufferings. It has had nothing to do with his atonement because all of that was perfectly complete. But he goes on to say that the sufferings that I share with Christ has to do with the spreading of the gospel and the furthering and building up of the church, souls being saved. That's the connection that he makes. And he, everywhere he went, this was true. Or 2 Timothy 3.12, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's a form of suffering. That's affliction. The affliction that Paul experienced in 2 Corinthians 1, we're going to look at it specifically later, but that suffering was persecution derivative of the gospel that he proclaimed. Or 1 Peter 4.1, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, which is kind of what we're about here. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And in that case, it's talking about our ongoing progressive work in sanctification that happens as a result of suffering. But one more, look at Philippians 1 to see this connection. And brother, sister, anything in your life can get planted into this. There's two categories. You can suffer for Christ by taking steps and initiative to put yourself in a position strategically for the gospel, and that can be a whole lot of choices. But in the process of putting yourself in that strategic position will invite vulnerability into your life so that suffering could come that if you didn't make that choice for the gospel, it wouldn't have happened. That's one way. Example, you go in a mission field where you make yourself vulnerable to disease. That if you stayed home, you wouldn't experience that. Or you make radical choices for ministry, you move to somewhere else. You downsize your house so you can give more money and it invites things into your world that you could have insulated yourself from had you not stepped out in faith for the gospel. That's suffering for Christ. But then there's another realm. Just the afflictions that hit you could be illness, loss of a child, economical situation, finances gone, that are now a platform for you to elevate the gospel of Christ and God's purposes which will be a form of suffering if you stay there under the umbrella of I'm going to trust Him in this. So, let's look at our text to help us with mostly with what the first point I was telling you there. Philippians 1 verse 20. With full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So Paul's saying, whether I suffer in my body or whether I die with my body. For to me, to live 
is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. No matter what. No matter what. It means fruitful labor. So, with that, and he goes on to talk about the... Verse 23, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Take verse 24. My remaining in the flesh is more necessary for your account. Fruitful labor. That is, number three, lesson three, our suffering is not in isolation, but intentionally for others as well. That's one of the big lessons. That we learn from suffering. That's God's plan. Is that you minister to others through your suffering. In your suffering. After your suffering is over with. So, this twofold look at verse 5. 2 Corinthians 1, 5. Just as certainly as our union with Christ adds suffering to our lives, so our union with Christ secures the intense and faithful love and comfort of the Father for us. Romans 8. What can separate us from the love of God? And Paul joins that with Christ's work on the cross for us. That's bought our sonship, our daughtership. Like that word? He's bought that for us. So he asks, what can separate us from this love that brings this comfort? And then he adds in verse 32, He who did not spare his son, see the connection with Christ, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Comfort. He will graciously give us all things. He will never turn his child away seeking comfort. Would you do that to your son or your daughter who fell and smashed his face and blood's coming out? He's coming and crying to you. Would you say, I'm not going to comfort you? God will never turn us away when we come to him for comfort. And he has an infinite supply of it. So, be comforted. Jesus has secured this kind of relationship with your Father. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to doubt. Isn't that the thing that we go back to in the midst of our deepest suffering when we question His love for us? No! That was settled on the cross. He couldn't do anything to express His love in a greater way. There is not one more thing in His infinite character that He could have pressed in further to express the amount of love for us. Nothing. Lesson number five. In the Father's plan for allowing suffering in His children, God is over all our suffering to work His good purposes. He has no evil intention or design in them. None. Good purposes only. Remember Joseph? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. When you betrayed me, when you sold me as a slave, 
and lied to my father and said that an animal killed me when you were going to kill me, but you found out you could get some cash off of it? You betrayed me? All of that evil intention that you had, the injustice, God had a good purpose for it. And when I went into prison, and when I did a good thing, and I got out, and then I was holy and righteous and blameless, and I didn't sleep with my master's wife, and she lied, and said I was trying to rape her, and I got thrown into prison again. All of that injustice, and it went on and on. How long did that go on? God meant it for good. He had a massive purpose, and he was sovereign. Really? Aren't you kind of losing control of this? I mean, I'm not going anywhere. I'm in prison. Nobody even knows about me. Oh, no. I haven't lost an ounce of it. God meant it for good and was over it all. That's amazing. You know, that's easy on this side of a trial. But as it goes on, that gets harder to remember. All the more reason to have the book in our hearts. So there's something for the Spirit to bring up to us. And to say, no, don't listen to the lie. Something for us to repent to. And say, God, forgive me again. I'm sorry. I know this is not true. Will you help me to believe? I mean, that's nothing wrong with saying, God, will you help me to believe this? I know it's true, but my heart's not getting it. So God is over all our suffering to work His good purposes. What's the classic verse for this? Come on, somebody tell me. What is the classic verse for this? Romans, Romans what? 8 what? 28. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Yes, I guess I just quoted it from the New American Standard. The ESV, <laughs> you know, you get them stuck in your head and that's the way you come out. The ESV says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. It would not surprise me if Romans 8, particularly verse 28, was informed by Paul's writing in 2 Corinthians 1. It is thought by many that Romans was actually written from Corinth on his third missionary journey. Nonetheless, the similarities are remarkable, and I want you to see them. You think about that verse, Romans 8, 28, or you need to, you can have a thumb in both sections. We know those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Look at verse Six. If we're afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it's for your comfort. No matter what happens. If we're afflicted, if we're comforted, either way, it's for your comfort. It's going to work out for good for you. Or I guess you could back up. 
who comforts us in all our afflictions. Verse 4. He's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. He's over it all. So that's one aspect, over all things. And then look at verse, where do I want to be? Six. And here's where it, the ESV doesn't show it. The word it says, which you experience, the comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. The word there, experience, other translations, works. The NIV says produces. It's a short form of the same word as he works all things together in Romans 8, 28. It wouldn't do me any good to tell you the verb. It doesn't mean anything. But anyway, it's a shortened form of it. It means working, producing. It's, it's effective. It's, it's used frequently by, by Paul when he's talking about what God's going to do in us. He's working things in us. And then finally, the same word is used, verse uh, 7, our hope for you is unshaken, for we know, we know that as you share in our sufferings, for we know that all things work together for good. It's amazing the parallel here. And I would not be surprised at all if Paul is not just on this, his whole very systematic explanation of the gospel. Very thorough relationship of trials to the gospel. Remember Romans 5, after he does such a good job of stating our position in Christ, and he talks about the progression of trials. It produces hope and endurance in Romans 5. And then he moves into chapter 8. That what God did in Paul... And we're going to get to the specifics of that in just a few seconds here. But what he did to him in his suffering, we're going to learn it's back in Asia, earlier in his ministry, was profound. Because here he's using it, God's using it to minister to the Corinthians, and he's ministering to us through it. Still. And then we get the book of Romans. All of this is tied together. Man, did God know what he was doing. You see? So, God is over all these things to work his good purposes. Every disappointment, every economic setback, every illness, every persecution, and every tragedy... Everything that we would view as negative, God is over it all to work His good purposes. We've already looked at one purpose so that we would be able to comfort others, but there is a far deeper and more ultimate purpose that Paul taps into in the second section of our text. The backdrop that Paul used to lead into this is the degree of the sufferings he has experienced. Now you could say to me, you have no idea what I've gone through. And I'd say, you're right. I don't. And there are plenty of people who have suffered greater than I have. To the degree I have, I can speak into someone else's pain. 
And I have suffered some. But there are others who have suffered far greater than me. And he said, you don't know. And I say, you're right. But your brother, namely Paul, has. And he is going to speak into it. So let's look at verses 8 and 9. We don't want you to be unaware, brothers. This is transparency. This is a leader saying, I'm not trying to hide anything from you. I want to share my life with you so that you can be helped. Because God has worked in me. And let me tell you what happened. This is what he says. I don't want you to be unaware. I don't want you to be ignorant of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we even felt that we had received the death sentence. Our time was up. That phrase is a pile, piling up of three different words or phrases to drive the point home. He says, it was beyond measure. That is, it was to the extreme. It was above our ability. No more resources. And then he says, we were burdened so that we despaired. We were utterly at loss. It was it. That's how bad it was. Even of life. Paul says, the center sunk. You know what depression is? It's when the center sinks down below the peripheral. That's what a depression is. It's a denting in of the middle. Where the core of who you are goes below everything around you. And at that point, you can no longer function. Christian. There ain't no drug going to fix that. You need help because it's the soul that's in trouble. Paul said, it's all the way down inside of me. And I despaired of life itself. Where are you going to go? It's a depression of soul. But it was not only a despair. I think he's tapping into two aspects. The soul aspect... And then I believe, because some scholars think that this is referring back in Acts 19, 20, when Paul is in Ephesus, you remember, and he's proclaiming Christ is King, Christ is God, Christ is Savior. By the way, your idol is nothing. And a, a riot erupts, all chaos, and for two hours... They scream out the supremacy of Artemis. Is it Artemis? Get my Greek gods mixed up. I think it was Artemis. But that's what over and over and over. And so Paul's just hearing this deafening roar of this mass of people against him and his ministry partners, the church, just over and over and over and over. And it's, it's just racking him. It's confusion. It's chaotic. It's loud. It's overwhelming, and his soul goes down as he realizes the overwhelming. Surely at this point, he's going, God, have you left me? You remember Paul got weak like that. Before he went to Corinth, he was scared 
And God came and he strengthened him. Christ came to him. He said, don't be afraid any longer. I got many people in this city. God comforted him through Christ there. So we know he got scared at times. And Paul was scared. And he sunk. But then he realized, no, it's over with. This is it. This mob is going to have us. So he says, we felt we had the sentence of death on us. In the midst of this, God comforted Paul. Really? In that intensity? Yes, that's why Paul's bringing it up. In the midst of that, God comforted him. Somewhere in there, he must have cried out. And God comforted him. But how did he do it? He did so, Paul says, by making him not rely on himself, but on God. Look at verse 9. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. This is the ultimate purpose, to drive us to dependence upon Him. When we get here, we enter into a very unique realm of worship. Remember how I said that started? First lesson, it's bookended. Because when we arrive here, it is a special place. Everything else is gone, and front and center is the awesome, infinite glory of God. Even in our despair. And that rock-solid truth finally comes up under us, and we say with Job, You are worthy. Have it all. Have it all. When we experience utter powerlessness in our circumstances, we're free to focus on His power. But notice what aspect of his power. This is huge. Look at our verse. Who raises the dead. What's the word for that? Resurrection. Resurrection power. Now that'll fix your thoughts. If you think about it. Nobody has the power to overturn death but God. Remember Lazarus, John 11? Man, even the, some of the Pharisees, when they saw that, they had to give it up. That's too much. He just, Lazarus, come forth. Out he comes. His body, which was stinking, filthy, rotting, decaying, dead, brain cells gone, heart gone, everything rotting, came back to rejuvenation and working again. Nobody knows how to do that. Nobody can do that. And Romans articulates this very clearly. That's our power source. That's the power source we have when we turn to Him. Wait a second. Are you really saying that I have within my reach in coming to my Father 
enough resources of power that's the same power that raises a body from the dead? Now make the connection here. Somebody tell me, what is our most, what's our greatest power as a modern society? Name it. One word, two words. What is it? Oh, wow, that's powerful. No, <laughs> nuclear bomb, right? Isn't that probably the greatest release of energy that we can fathom? But that blows things to bits. It doesn't bring anything together. Think about it. Resurrection power, so powerful, it pulls it all back together. All the bodies exploded in Hiroshima. One day, Jesus is going to say, get up! And they're all going to come back together. That's power. That's a lot of power to pull all that back together. Oh, we can blow it apart, but we have no idea how to accumulate power to bring it together. That's what Paul says we have access to in your deepest, most intense suffering. That's the power. That's what God wants to do. He wants to bring us to that place where we'll stop. That's why they get so hard some. That's why the suffering goes on and on and on. Because we're thick-headed. And we keep thinking we got these resources. We want to pull them in. And eventually we say, God, I can't do it. You're going to have to come through. So their father uses these afflictions to drive out self-reliance so that he can give us something bigger and better to take comfort in resurrection power Romans 6 4 remember how I said in our text that everything is tied into verse 5 our union with Christ in Romans 6 4 it states that our union with Christ is so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, resurrection, we too might walk in newness of life. Now that's the sanctification. That's, I mean, that's fitting for rejoicing in our sufferings, right? Praising God in our sufferings, believing. That's what it means to walk in newness of life. But that text is not just about sanctification because the next verse says, for if we've been united with Christ in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Folks, we can't lose this. Now, honestly, how much do you think about the resurrection? How much do we think about that kind of power that God has given to us? When we pray, do we latch on to Him like that? Are we asking for that kind of power to be channeled? What are we asking for? God, give me a happy day? That, that's why he hymns us in at times, so we give up thinking about God, give me a happy day. God, give me real power. The very power that it takes to bring about the resurrection, this is his power for us. Now notice in verse 10 how confident Paul is. He says, three times God is able to deliver. 
God is able. Look at verse 10. He delivered us from such a deadly peril. That situation in verses 8 and 9, He delivered us from it. And He will deliver us, future. On Him, on God. Now i got my thinking right. On God, we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. He can deliver you. You say, what if he doesn't choose to heal me and I die? That's the point of this text. Because we're tapping into resurrection power. God will deliver you. Oh, he will deliver you if you die. Yes, he will deliver you. With resurrection power, he will deliver you. All of it. You're going to get a body that can finally look into the glory of God that you can't look into now or it'll destroy you. You're going to get a body that is superior, that's made for a human being to enjoy a relationship with God. It'll be victory, right? All of death is swallowed up in this power. So there is no limit to his deliverance. That's why Paul says he did deliver us. He's going to deliver us. And oh yeah, he's going he's to deliver us in the future. Yes, he will deliver us. In the future. I want to take you to two texts. And we're going to be done. His resurrection power. Will deliver you into his glory. And that's very much better. What he said in Philippians 1. Right? That's far better. But I want you to go to 2 Timothy. Paul's at the end of his life. And Paul is still. And I don't know how many times this must have happened for him. But he's still living out the reality of this process. Look in chapter 4, verse 15. He's at the end of his life. Um, Verse 16. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me. So he's on the death row, right? He's about to be executed. At my first defense... No one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. Man, that's a trial. How about all your ministry partners? Where'd they go? I'm in my darkest hour. Nobody to comfort me. Now I'm ready to despair. I thought you'd be with me. No. And may it not be charged against them. Oh, look at verse 17. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. You see, the Father sent Christ to minister to him. Remember verse 5? As often and as much are the sufferings of Christ, so abundantly will be the comfort of Christ. Jesus came and personally ministered to Paul. Now there's a friend, right? You think the Father doesn't know how to meet us with the ministry of the Spirit who brings the presence of Christ to us? Oh, yes, he does. So that through me, man, Paul doesn't lose it. Lesson three, through me, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. Comfort for you, salvation for you, my sufferings, God's going to comfort me. And that'll mean blessing for you. You see the lessons? But, 
Notice what he says. So I was rescued, delivered from the lion's mouth. Still being delivered right at the very end. But then look what he says in verse 18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. Yes, every single one. And bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. That's the final deliverance. He never lost sight of the resurrection. Never. And he has to end with what? Worship. To him be the glory forever and ever. Now, go back to 2 Corinthians. I want to look at one more text because I want you to see one example and go through the book. Just watch how it just takes off after this. To see how this process that he explains in chapter 1 changed Paul from the depths of despair in verses 8 and 9 to the heights of glory. Look at chapter 4. And we'll be done with this. Verse 16. So Paul, just before this, he goes through a series. He does it several times. A series of his sufferings, all that he goes through, and his ministry partners go through. In verse 16. Just before that, he talked about, again, the deliverance, the resurrection, the blessing to others. But verse 16. So we do not lose heart. I'm comforted. Isn't that what that means? If we don't despair, we've been comforted. We don't lose heart. Despair, lose heart, same thing. We don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away all these beatings, suffering, all this sickness, I can't do what I used to do, all these trials, although my outer body is wasting away, our inner self is constantly being renewed day by day. Now look what he says. For this light momentary affliction. Same word, different set of categories, adjectives to describe it. Light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. You see where his hope is? God, eternal resurrection power. For the things that are seen are transient. That is, it all passes away, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know, verse 1, chapter 5, that if the tent, now this is the resurrection hope, if the tent, the case, the tabernacle, the shell, your body, that is our earthly home is destroyed, worst case scenario, we have a building from God, new body, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent, in this body, we groan, longing to put on our new body. Man, if we live like this, I live for that new body that God has for me. It's just too easy too often to not live like this. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed. We don't want just some kind of amorph, not a body type existence. But so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life, resurrection power. He who has prepared us for this very thing is the Father. The Father. God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. 
So we are always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. Christ! See the Trinity here. For we walk by believing, not by the crushing around us, our circumstances, our sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Now, do you see the thread? What's the purpose? What's the Father's plan for allowing suffering in His children? It's to produce worship from His people. Front, in the middle, and at the end. And finally, in His presence. It's to produce intimacy with God as we go to our Father and cry out to Him and we receive His mercy and His comfort. Because He cares for you. He really does. His compassion, that is pity, that is, He is moved at your suffering. And then, it is because we're not in isolation, but it is intentionally for others as well. And it is rooted in our union with Christ. It secures everything that God has planned for this suffering. He will bring it to pass. And finally, God is powerfully, sovereignly, over all our suffering to work His good purposes. And in the end, it will mean for you no less than resurrection in your body before His presence. Evermore to worship Him. If we could just have the Spirit of God take us back to these truths, then it will align our thinking and we can say no to the lies. And we can respond believing, not unbelieving. So I want to pray and ask God to help us just to do that. Father, we would immediately be doubting you if we didn't come to you and say, Lord, we need your mercy and you have it for us. There are people here suffering some I know about, some I don't know about. Some are going to be suffering. Some have suffered in the past and they don't know how to deal with the wounds that they have. But you are, Father, tenderly concerned. So would you speak through your Spirit to each soul in this room the comfort you have. Holy Spirit, will you apply your, your truths to our hearts and will you help us? We so often doubt in our weaknesses. Will you help us to be quicker to, to turn to you and trust you? You're so faithful. Jesus, thank you for what you've bought for us. Lord, change us and comfort us. Bring your comfort this morning. In Christ's name, amen.